Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we come to verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. And it says, that which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, Concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage for who can bring him to see What will happen after him? Now, remember what I've said to you earlier. Chapter three of the book of Ecclesiastes is the heart of the book. It is the heart of the preacher's message. He invites the reader to look up to everything. There's a a time and a season. God is in charge of time. There's a time for everything. There's a time To live, there's a time to die. But guess what else there's a time for? There's a time for the truth. God has ordained purpose under heaven. Now, remember that because God has ordained purpose under heaven, God has a creative purpose. You'll remember in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. But with the fall of human beings, God initiated A redemptive purpose. He put eternity in men's hearts, except that no one can can work out uh, that got what God does from the beginning to end in verse 11. Only the New Testament gives us a sufficient revelation to interpret those words for the gospel alone tells us about God. It's the gospel alone that tells us that God sends a savior to die on the cross to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven. Yes, God has placed eternity in our hearts, but God also places abundant life in a heart that was meant for eternity. Remember in John 10, 10, Jesus came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If the redemptive purpose of God is rejected, then God includes A corrective purpose. God requires an account of what is past. Do you see what it says in verse 15? The preacher adds, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, 
God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work in verses 16 and 17. Now think about it. A lot of people accept the creative purpose of God. But they reject the redemptive purpose of God. And when you reject the redemptive purpose of God, guess what? The corrective purpose of God is going to take effect. What chance does the person have who refuses God's salvation in Christ? What recourse exists for the sinner who accepts the creative purpose, rejects the redemptive purpose? There is no recourse. In other words, there's no second or third option. We live in a day of grace, and when the day of grace passes, guess what? The day of judgment comes. This is the reason the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. So again, the preacher preaches, we look up. God has established the times. We look within. God has placed eternity in our hearts in verses 9 through 14. But now the writer invites you to look down the road, to look ahead. Birth is a mystery. Death is a certainty. Life, death, time, eternity, These are the ingredients that make up our brief existence here and then our eternal existence elsewhere, somewhere. And so the preacher's message shifts from an evaluation of our life from an earthly perspective to a dramatic look at life from God's perspective in verses 15 through 21. The preacher looks at what God has done in verse 15. God's supervision of all things in the past, what God does now in verses 18 through 21, how God tests people, and then what God will do in verses 16 and 17. God will bring judgment to the righteous and to the wicked. And when we come to this particular portion of the scripture, it's as if the preacher is alone with his thoughts. Have you ever been alone with your thoughts? Where you begin to think about the consequences of your life. No one is around to listen. It's only a conversation that's taking place inside of your heart with your mind. He is alone with his thoughts and his thoughts are painful and disturbing. The preacher has considered his project. He's considered the plan. He's considered the building, the planting, the digging, the accumulation, the entertainment. And then the preacher does what preachers often do. He talks to himself. But he lets you listen in. And that's part of the point. The preacher touches on disillusionment and confusion. And the preacher is well aware that we live in a world that doesn't always seem fair and in a world that doesn't always seem right, where injustice and inequity and unfair treatment occur, where greed and pride and wicked arrogance doesn't seem to go unpunished. And so he considers these things. 
Here's what God has done. Look again at verse 15. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. When it says that which has already that which is has already been and that which is to be has already been. What is he saying? He's suggesting to you that life has a course of action of repetition. Bible scholars are divided on how to translate the end of the verse where it says, and God requires an account of what is past. As a matter of fact, it literally reads in the Hebrew language. God seeks what hurries along. Sometimes the word seeks means you're looking for something like when you're seeking an object or it can be used in a figurative sense, like I'm looking to kill someone. But it can also mean in the legal sense in the the beginning in Genesis where Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Or in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, should I not demand that the Hebrew were to seek his blood from your hand? Or I will require justice for the shedding of his blood. And so it could mean, and God requires an account of what is past. Here's part of the challenge. We live in a world where we now know that the earth rotates on its axis, right? Our earth is spinning. And as the earth spins, it spins around the sun. And as the, as the earth rotates around the sun, we also know that the sun is spinning in our solar system around the galaxy. But we've now come also to believe that the that the galaxies are moving and they're moving apart from one another. So the sun is moving. The, the galaxy is moving. Solomon might be saying that the time is going by quickly and it gets away from us or time <laughs> keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. That was a very famous theologian named Steve Miller. That God keeps track of all time. And so when it says, and God seeks what hurries along, it may mean that God is keeping track of everything. Now, let me help you understand that. As difficult as it may seem, God has an accurate understanding of everything and everyone. From God's perspective, is there a past or a present or a future? No. Does God see everything specifically, plainly for God is everything past, everything present and everything future in the e eternal present? The answer is yes. So how are we to think about this? I think what it means is that because God has an accurate understanding of everything that everyone has ever done, that God will bring about justice. Have you ever heard someone say, OK, if God is in control, how do you explain the presence of evil or how do you explain the presence of wickedness in the world? If God is going to hold every single person every single time to an ultimate place of accountability, how am I to understand that? 
And I think that the right answer is because God is keeping a record. God knows everything about everyone. He knows every thought that you think, every circumstance inside of your heart. How is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Well, guess what? As life unfolds and as death becomes certain, God is keeping a record. And even though something might seem to go unrewarded or rewarded, punished or unpunished, God's keeping an account. That's the idea. Human counsel, human wisdom, human problems, human struggles, human answers. We're looking at things horizontally instead of vertically. And so we live in a world where the vast majority of people live apart from God, estranged from God. God is absent their thinking. And so they evaluate everything they see with the idea that God isn't really there. And so the preacher says in verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment. Now, remember, under the sun is an idiomatic expression in this particular book where he's saying, moreover, I saw under the sun. That is from a human way of looking at it, from the way that we look at things on the horizontal level in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. In other words, if justice and righteousness cannot be found in the place where justice and righteousness belongs, where can it be found? Here's what he's saying in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there, by the way. What is the place of judgment? The place of judgment is the place where there should be justice and equity, where wrong should become right. Where something that is taken from someone should be given back. So the place of judgment is what you and I would call the court of law. It's the place where disputes are settled. If justice and righteousness cannot be found in the place where justice and righteousness is supposed to be, where can it be found? To put it in a modern example, if you can't get justice in the court system, we have an appeal process, don't we? A court can appeal to a higher court. And then it can appeal to an even higher court. And what's the highest court in the land in the United States of America? It's the Supreme Court. And so you would hope that at the Supreme Court, this is the place where justice will be served, where the Constitution will be honored and where the rights and freedoms of human people will be observed. But what do you do if the Supreme Court rules wrongly? What do you do if the Supreme Court rules that an unborn baby isn't really a, a person? And you're free to slaughter the baby at will. What do you do if the Supreme Court rules that black people aren't really people, but they can be enslaved? Is it possible for a court, even the highest court, to come down on the wrong side of justice? What do you think the answer is? Clearly, it is possible. The preacher sees injustice and the preacher sees oppression. He sees injustice and oppression where the place of justice and righteousness are supposed to be upheld. This is the place where the rights of the poor are supposed to be protected, but they're not being protected. 
And so in verse 17, it says, I said in my heart. That's his way of saying, I started to have a conversation with myself. I invisibly and internally and quietly began to have a conversation within myself. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Do you understand what the preacher's saying? The preacher starts to do the math. Well, wait a minute. If human beings have to settle accounts with God, there must be such a thing as judgment day. That's what he's saying. If human beings have to do business with God, then there must be a God and that God has to make decisions. God will judge the righteous man and God will judge the wicked man. Why is this important in our conversation? Because when you get to the passages where it doesn't look like human beings actually survive the grave, this becomes an important point in a way not completely known or understood by the preacher. The preacher's coming to the conclusion in order for there to be true justice, in order for there to be true equity, equity and justice can't be decided this side of eternity every single time. At some point, God has to settle accounts. That's what he's saying. There will come a time when all things will be brought before a holy bench, a righteous judge, and then that righteous judge will pronounce judgment. As a matter of fact, the expression for there is a time. It says in the original language, a time for everything and every deed is there. What does the preacher mean by there. Does he mean a time for every matter? Does he mean it in an eschatological sense, an ultimate sense? In other words, does this mean there in the sense of now you've entered into eternity, that once you are there, you've crossed over from the temporal to the eternal, you've crossed over from this place to the other place, Psalm 14.5, I think, gives us a clue. It says, quote, There evildoers are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous, unquote. I think there means judgment day. It's the place where God rules and reigns. Do you realize that the New Testament says that God has placed all judgment Into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus is going to judge. Everyone. And everything. The time and the place are not given. It could mean the day of judgment where the unrighteous are punished. And the righteous are vindicated. The preacher doesn't give us the time and the place. But clearly it's in the context of the grave and death. The preacher doesn't speculate as to the nature or the duration of the punishment that is given to the wicked. That's left for elsewhere in the Bible. You realize that the person who has the most to say about hell is Jesus. Jesus is the person who describes hell as a place 
punishment, torment of consciousness and awareness. And so in verse 18, it says what God does now. Look what it says. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men. God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Now, think about what you're reading. The preacher's thinking inside of his heart. The circumstances. And he said, I said in my, my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them. And by the way, the word test is very interesting in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew, the word means to winnow or sift. God is at work revealing the truth about human nature and human character. And so when it says, I said in my heart, God tests them. It isn't so that you pass the test or fail the test. Remember part of the context. It is he's testing them. He's testing the people who are living their lives as if God isn't real, as if the Bible isn't true, as if the revelation has never been given. So what happens when human beings abandon God and and they leave no room for God in their lives? What happens when there are no governors, there's no prohibitions, there's no restrictions? People begin to act like animals, don't they? If they don't fear punishment, if they don't think that there's anything that's going to happen to them, people will do all kinds of crazy things. People who live with the thought No one is ever going to find out. No one is never going to judge me. And there will be no consequences to my action. People begin to behave like animals. And by the way, the test, remember what the test is. It isn't to prove to God what you are or what you're not. Does God know everything about everything? Does God know the truth about each and every one of us? Does God see the invisible, internal recesses of our lives and our hearts that we ourselves are unprepared to talk about? So the revelation isn't to God. The test is for your sake. The test comes so that you yourself will know what you yourself are. And so that's what he's talking about. People who leave God out of their thinking begin to behave like animals driven by instinct and desire. And by the way, if we dare to limit our observations only to what can be observed, if we dare to limit our observations and conclusions only to the empirical data, we're forced to conclude that that we don't have that much advantage over our furry friends. In one sense, an animal is driven by instinct and desire. In one sense, we are no better than any other living creature. Animals do everything to postpone death. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Why do animals breathe? What happens when you stop breathing? You die. Animals drink. Unless you're a single-celled amoeba or... In other words, when we're talking about living creatures, living things, 
do living things ingest food? Why? To keep from dying. Animals procreate. Why? Because they understand that one day they're going to die and you've got to put your, your gene pool into the future. Have you ever stopped to consider how much things people do, they do simply to postpone death? Why do you go to the doctor? I want to stay healthy. Why do you want to stay healthy? Think about it. So I won't. What is it that you do really that doesn't fall under the umbrella of postponing death? We sometimes think that judgment is yet future. But there's a sense in which God is judging us right now. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And then in verse 19, it says, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies. So dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all is Empty, all is meaningless, all is vanity. Look what it says. And so what is he saying? When human beings live like animals, they share the common fate of animals. So when he says, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. Animals are born, animals live, animals die. Animals can die because they get hunted down. Animals can die in an accident. Animals can die of disease. Some animals, I guess, could die of old age. When human beings live like animals, they share the common fate of animals. Now, clearly, does the Bible teach that there's a difference between human beings and animals? Now, remember, from the perspective, a horizontal perspective, it looks like we're very much the same. I heard somewhere that Human beings have the exact same DNA sequence of chimpanzees, or of 98%. But we also share 50% of our DNA with a sponge. So genetic signatures aren't necessarily the thing that sets us apart from all beings. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, it says that we're made in the image of God. That Adam was made as a special act of creation. That woman was taken from his side. That human beings are made in one sense in the image of God. In what sense? Does God have two eyes, a nose, and a mouth? No, I don't think that that's what it means. I think what it means is that we're a living being capable of friendship and relationship. In other words, we are able to think and respond and communicate. We're capable of friendship and fellowship and relationship. The Lord Jesus saved us by his death and his resurrection. We're cleansed from guilt. We're able to enter into fellowship with God. We're able to become heirs with Christ in, in eternity. One day we're going to have resurrection bodies. We're going to have a final destination. That's not true of animals. There's no promise in the Bible that animals will be given a resurrection body and a final destination. The 
preacher is saying that from the from the vantage point of people living apart from God, man has no advantage over the animal in respect to death. Death is the ultimate harsh reality. The Bible says for it's appointed once for a human being to die and then comes judgment. The very fact that the Bible includes that judgment will come means that we survive in some way in order to face that judgment. And so for human beings who dare to entertain the notion that human beings are little gods or unformed gods or gods in the making. Death is a surprising wake up call. Oh, your God? What kind of a God dies? What kind of a God is subject to disease and limitations and sin? The Bible teaches that we are creatures, not the creator. But the preacher says in verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust and all return To dust. Here in verse 20, some cults have used this particular passage to support the idea that human beings don't survive death. As a matter of fact, during the time of Jesus in the first century, remember, there were two groups of people. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sadducees subscribed to the notion here in in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 20, that once you're dead, you're dead. They kind of taught a form of personal extinction. All go to one place here. I think what it means is the grave. All are from the dust. Clearly, we're all formed out of the materials that make up the physical universe in which we live and all return to dust because the constituent components of who you are of matter and muscle and neurons. A person dies and the constituent components return to their elemental circumstances. The preacher selects as his text, Genesis chapter three, verse 19, for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. He's not introducing some new idea or some idea that's different from what the rest of the Bible teaches. We're creatures. God formed a human being from the dust of the earth. Human bodies, animal bodies, they share a common fate. Living tissue becomes dead tissue. The dead tissue disintegrates. I've already told you what Woody Allen famously said. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through uh, not dying. Remember? Even the unbeliever. Even the unbeliever suspects that there's something powerful and inevitable and certain about dying. The Bible believer doesn't deny the power of death. Do you realize that only the Christian, really, only the Christian understands the truth about death? Remember, the wages of sin is death. Remember what death is. It's separation from God, spiritually at first, and then physically throughout all of eternity. (laughs) The unbeliever may want to approach 
death lightly. But that's a mistake. Ask the unbeliever, what do you think happens when you die? Well, I, I think you just go back into the dirt. You're annihilated. You're evaporated. Even as a kid, we learned it. The worms crawl in. The worms crawl out. The worms play pinochle on your snout. They eat your eyes. They eat your, your nose. They eat the jelly between your toes. And when you're in elementary school, you're brutal. You're blunt. You die. You disintegrate. You rot. Some people takes up the idea that the spirit survives. We live in a culture and a society where the ghost whisperer and, and, and whatever that other television show is about medium. Yeah, that's the lady. Here's the idea. We live in a culture and a society where people just believe that you die and you enter into this tunnel. And as you enter into the tunnel, you see smiling relatives on either side. The people who always come over at Thanksgiving and Christmas and they all love each other and you're on the other side and there's unconditional regard. So what really happens are human beings simply blood and bone and muscle and tissue and chemical and electrical signals? Do we have an invisible, eternal, immortal quality? Do we have a soul? Do we have a spirit? In verse 21, the preacher says, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. And you know what? You're going to miss the whole point if you actually omit the first part of chapter 3, verse 21. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men? Indeed, here's what the preacher's saying. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? That's the point. Do you know? Do you know the truth? Do you know the truth about what happens when you die? Many people believe that they'll seek God or, or plan to seek God at the 11th hour and then they die at 1030. Yeah, what a drag is that? I read a book called To Hell and Back by Dr. Maurice Rawlings. He's a heart doctor, a cardiologist in, in the place where my uncle and my, my grandma lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's dealt with scores of people who have had what we might call near-death experiences. And these death survivors describe the moment of death as absolutely painless, regardless of every instinct we've heard about it. Dr. Rawlings described in interviews with people who have these near-death experiences that death is like missing a heartbeat or losing your breath or just simply... Passing out. Some had experiences of leaving their body. Others travel what looks like a tunnel. About half of the people reported going to a place of torment. According to Dr. Rawlings, he was an agnostic or a cynic. But one day he had a patient who changed his mind. His name was Charles McCaig. He was from Lafayette, Georgia. He was a 48-year-old mail carrier. He was doing a routine treadmill. The heart monitor became erratic. It then flatlined and unexpectedly, Charlie continued to talk for a few moments, unaware that his heart had stopped four or five seconds later. And he looked around dumbfounded. 
Then his eyes rolled up in his head. He fell on the treadmill. Rawlings immediately began to apply CPR. And as Charlie's heart started beating, he screamed, Don't stop! Don't stop! I'm in hell! I'm in hell! The doctor thought the patient was having hallucinations, but Charlie said, For God's sake, don't stop! Don't you understand? Every time you let go, I slip back into hell. Charlie begged the doctor to pray for him, but Rawlings said, Shut up! I'm a doctor. I'm not a minister. And even the nurses were horrified. All right. He said, say it. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Go on, say it. Charlie said the the words and a strange thing happened. He was no longer a wide eyed, screaming, combative lunatic. He was relaxed and calm and cooperative. I found his testimony. I'm going to read it to you. This is from Charlie. Quote, when I came to Dr. Rawlings said my hair was literally standing on end and my eyes had already started dilating. I was absolutely scared to death. I was horrified. My life was very normal. I I partied a lot. I joined a church at a young age because of my parents. I really didn't realize what church was about or what it meant to accept Jesus as the Lord. And early one morning, I had walked to the local clinic in my hometown. At that time, I thought I might be having a heart attack. So I met Dr. Rawlings. He kept me for about three or four days. And then he gave me a stress test. I remember while taking it, I felt like I was lit, like I really wanted to get off and, the, and that this was the last thing I remember about it. And when I came to Dr. Rawlings was giving me CPR and he asked me what was the matter because I looked so scared. I told him that I had been to hell and I needed help. He said to me, keep your hell to yourself. I'm a doctor and I'm trying to save your life. You need a minister for that. And as he was giving me CPR, he was trying to install a pacemaker with the other hand and I would fade out every so often. And then he would focus on the CPR and bring me back. I was soon floating on the air watching what was going on going on, looking down. And whenever I came back into my body, I kept asking, help me, please help me. I don't want to go to hell. So a nurse named Pam said, he needs help. Do something. At that time, Dr. Rawlings told me to repeat this short prayer. I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. Jesus saved my soul. Keep me alive. If I die, please keep me out of hell. After that, the other fading out experiences were very pleasant. I saw my stepmother, my mother, my mom passed away when I was about five months old. I saw a photograph of her. My stepmother passed away about 10 years ago. I didn't have any contact with them. All I could remember was that they kept reaching out to me. I've heard it said that you couldn't carry money with you. And when I was with my mother and stepmother, I I didn't have any pockets. I know this sounds weird, but I was trying to remember everything that I saw. After that, I remember walking down a lane that had colors on both sides, brilliant colors. I had a little experience in our but nobody, not even Rembrandt, could reproduce those things. And here's Dr. Rawlings. After all this was over, I realized what had happened. It was a double conversion. Not only had this make-believe prayer converted this atheist on the floor, it also converted the atheist doctor who was working on him. And then Dr. Rawlings said, until you know where you're going, it's not safe to die. No kidding. You know what's interesting to me? Solomon 
believes that God knows what happens when you die. Solomon believes that God will judge the wicked and the righteous. Solomon believed that the spirit of a human being goes to God for either reward or punishment. The preacher suggests that man and animals may have a different death experience, but when a human being dies, his or her spirit leaves the body, according to James chapter 2, verse 26, according to Genesis chapter 35, verse 18, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 55, and the spirits of human beings return to God. Take Ecclesiastes, turn all the way to the end of the book. So you come to chapter 12, verse 7. This is what it says. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God, who gives it. Does this mean that whatever makes an animal an animal, it's life? Its presence, its consciousness, does the animal just simply cease to exist? Again, the Bible doesn't give us a clear indication of what happens to animals. But the Bible gives us a clear indication of what happens to human beings. Their body goes into the dirt and their soul or their spirit goes somewhere else. And when it goes to that somewhere else, it awaits a time of judgment. And in verse 22, it says, so I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? In other words, the preacher's asking the million dollar question. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. It's his way of saying Look, you should live your life in such a way that your life matters. And then he asks the question for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? That's the million dollar question. Does anyone know the future? Does anyone know the truth? Can we return to life after we've died in order to advise the living about the condition of the dead. I read the story of Dr. Rawlings. And many more people are way more likely to believe that story than there are to believe what the Bible says. Even though the Bible is undeniably, absolutely, positively true. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you know the passage of Scripture. Paul writes in verse 13, But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the implication being that's exactly what we believe, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul is saying, I didn't get this from Dr. Maurice Rawlings. This wasn't on CNN or ABC. I didn't get it from Katie Couric. I didn't get it from the news flashes. 
I got this. This is the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, meaning dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Here's what Paul Paul says, Paul says that when the Bible speaks of Jesus living and dying and resurrecting from the dead and coming back from the dead, that he gives us an accurate, truthful indication of the truth about what happens when you die. The preacher leaves his own question unanswered. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Who indeed? The preacher asks the question, but he doesn't answer the question. The question is answered by the preacher's future famous son, Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life? And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The preacher sees this as a teaching moment. We have to contend with injustice on this side of eternity. We are left on the earth for reasons that we don't always know or that we don't have any control over. The preacher's answer says, rejoice, be happy in your activities on the earth. We might say, make the best of a bad situation. Have you ever heard that? Look, you don't have any control over your circumstances. You don't have any control over certain things in your life. But what you do have control over, take control. Does your life matter? Yes. Do your circumstances matter? Yes. Is it possible that things aren't going so well? Yes. Is it possible that things are going really well? Yes. Does what will happen after him mean after him on the earth? Or after him in eternity future? I'm going to suggest to you that the context seems to favor the eternal state. What will happen? What will happen? What will take place in the first five seconds and the first ten seconds, if such a thing as seconds exist, when your eyes close and your heart stops pumping blood through your body and your breath is exhaled and the physiological and the neurological and the electrical function of your brain ceases and your body becomes a cold cadaver. What happens the first few moments in the next life? Harry Houdini, the great escape artist, thought that he would be able to break out of whatever facility held the souls of the dead. He promised he would return and tell his beloved wife the truth about what happens when you die. And every year, 
on the anniversary of her dead husband, she gathered with friends and begged the spirit of Harry Houdini to come back and tell them the truth about what happens when you die. Guess what? He never came back. By the way, to this very day, on the anniversary of of Harry Houdini's death, they gather to see if he'll make good on his promise. But the Bible makes a far greater promise. The psalmist David wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. By the way, in order for a shadow to be present, what also has to be present? A shining light, huh? Only a shining light can create a shadow. How big does the light have to be for death? To cast a shadow. Make no mistake about it. There is a light. The Christian. It's not a tunnel. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. The Bible says precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. No wonder Jesus told his own friends, he said, I'm going to go away. But if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. Where will you be when you die? If you know and love Jesus, you'll be with Jesus. If Jesus is in heaven, you'll be in heaven. If Jesus returns to the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years, he'll return to the earth. If for whatever reason Jesus decides to do a geological expedition to Mars, just to satisfy my curiosity and so I could look for meteorites, then you'll be on Mars. Warren Wiersbe writes, Faith learns to live with seeming inconsistencies and absurdities. For we live by promises and not by explanations. We can't explain life, but we must experience life, either enduring it or enjoying it. Solomon calls us to accept life, to enjoy it a day at a time and be satisfied. We must never be satisfied with ourselves, but we must be satisfied with what God gives us in this life. If we grow in character and godliness and if we live by faith, and then we will be able to say with Paul, I have learned to be content in whatever. Ever my circumstances, unquote. He's quoting Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. What are your circumstances right now? Painful? Delightful? Intimidating? Threatening? You may wallow in self-pity, or you can look to the Lord. Ask yourself a couple of questions. Am I living with what seems like an unfair disadvantage? And I'm not talking about petty irritations. I'm not talking about a liability or a disability or or annoyances. I'm talking about with something severe and something profound. At what point am I willing to replace passive self-pity with active courage? It's going to take courage to move from the place of self-pity to determination. 
and your disadvantages could become advantages from God's perspective. What you perceive to be as a disadvantage, God may want to use for you to trust Him and rely on Him and depend upon Him. Solomon's disadvantages become our advantage because Solomon's son knows the truth. Jesus knows the truth. Jesus knows the truth about what will happen in your future. Doug Murren and Barb Shuren in their book, Is It Real When It Doesn't Work, wrote, Toward the end of the 19th century, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel awoke one morning to read his own obituary in the local newspaper. Quote, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man, unquote. Actually, it was Alfred's older brother who had died. A newspaper reporter bungled the epitaph, but the account had a profound effect on him. He decided he wanted to be known for something other than developing an effective means to kill massive amounts of people and accumulating a fortune in the process. So he initiated the Nobel Prize, the award for scientists and writers who foster peace. Nobel said, quote, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one, unquote. Can you imagine if you had the opportunity to write your own gravestone? What do you want it to say? What do you want it to say? What do you want your life to mean? How do you want it to matter? Few things will change us as much as looking at our life. As though it's already finished. Imagine you don't get to wake up tomorrow. You don't get to make that cup of tea or coffee. You don't get to say goodbye to anyone or anything. All you have left is simply the life that you've lived. Apart from God. Or with God. In relationship with Jesus or without a relationship with Jesus. I'd certainly like to invite you to experience what Jesus promises. Forgiveness, hope, life, reconciliation with the Father, friendship and relationship with God. In a moment, we're going to have communion. I'm going to have the guys come up. I'm going to have Isaac come up. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to have communion. There's just one thing I'd ask you to do. Just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to participate together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know to everything there's a season. And a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. And in between the time to be born and a time to die, there's a time to tell the truth and there's a time to know the truth. 
And the truth is that human beings apart from Jesus with no restraints, with no prohibitions, live their lives like animals. And Heavenly Father, so many of us lived our lives as if our life didn't matter. And then we came to that realization that life does matter. That there's a real God and that one day we're going to have to give an account of our life. Everything that we've said and everything that we've done and everything that we are. And that we can't hide anything from you. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who for whatever reason finds themselves distant and alone, estranged from you. Lord, I pray that they're asking themselves this question. I wonder if it's true. I wonder if there really is a heaven. I wonder if there really is a hell. I wonder if Jesus is really the Lord. I wonder if he can forgive me. I wonder if he can change me. Lord, I pray that you would answer the questions. That, Lord, in their heart, they would sense the invitation that's being extended to them. That there's hope and forgiveness and love in Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, I pray that they would reach out to you. I pray that they would confess their sin and their unbelief. That they would believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That he rose from the dead. And because he's alive, he can not only change us everything, but he can change us from the inside out. Forgiving us. Reconciling us. Giving us life and love and hope. Lord, I pray for that person. I pray that they would pray that simple prayer. That they would invite Jesus to be the Lord of their life. In Jesus' name.